0: Dear congregation, in the church in Puassan, we're going through a series right now looking at different prayers in the Scriptures as patterns for prayer. We recently finished going through the Heidelberg Catechism, where we looked at, in the last section of Catechism, the Lord's Prayer. But then now we are looking at different prayers which God's children preached or prayed and are recorded in the Scriptures in different situations, some of them when they were depressed or anxious or beset by enemies, and then this one. We looked at, especially in the situation where we may survey the church as Nehemiah did and he heard a report of what was the church of his age, seeing it broken down and in a terrible, sad situation, how then Nehemiah prayed for restoration. So each one of the sermons we've done are looking at a different prayer from the scriptures and this one really we're looking at as a pattern for prayer when restoration is needed pattern for prayer when restoration is needed in Nehemiah chapter 1 the situation in Nehemiah chapter 1 is it's the time of the exile we actually read about it in the prayer in verse 8 where Nehemiah mentioned if you are unfaithful this was God's judgment from the words of to Moses if you are unfaithful i will scatter you among the nations and so the judgment of God was that if the people of Israel sinned, and if they were unfaithful to His commandments, they would lose the privilege of living in the promised land. Because in the promised land, they were to represent the name of the Lord God. His temple was right at the center, and it was as though He dwelt among them. He he showed His presence there amongst them, but He said, if you live in sin, If you break my commandments, you will have to be scattered. And we should see that also in a very relational way. The exile, the picture goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the picture of being banished after sin. And so God's people... At that time, they were conquered by various marauding armies. Different nations actually came in different stages over some decades and even centuries. And they began at first to pick off some of God's people from the northern kingdom, carry some of them away as slaves, until finally, other than a few, very few stragglers, the people of Israel were carried off, made into slaves, in faraway lands. Can you imagine, children, if because of the sin of your nation, the Russians or the Chinese came and invaded your nation? And they took you away to go work in their factories. And there you were surrounded in a foreign nation by people who spoke languages you could not understand. This really happened to God's people. This is their experience. Taken away, dragged off to foreign nations. And even more than that, out of the Holy Land and into pagan lands. Gentile lands. What a heartbreaking scene it was. But there was hope. Hope in the prophecies of prophets like Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 25 that after 70 years, some would be able to come back. There would be a restoration. If you read in Daniel, who lived, as far as we know, a little while before Nehemiah, probably 80 or 90 years, that Daniel comes across that in the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he has great hope. We're going to be able to go home, or at least some will be able to go home. King Cyrus would actually allow a resettlement. But here we come, now it's about 80 or 90 years after Daniel, And after the first attempts to try to build up the promised land again and to resettle it, Nehemiah lives now still in captivity. Still a servant of one of the evil empires of the east. And he hears this sad news. The resettlement is not going very well. We've probably all seen construction projects that do not go well. No, you know, in the area where I live, it's actually quite common, unfortunately, to see the signs and the construction fences around a construction site and to see something like completion fall of 2022. Not much has happened. People haven't got their act together or there's been some regulatory issues or funding issues or whatever it is. And if you have worked in construction... Perhaps you've experienced some of the frustration of that and all that can go wrong, the delays, the unexpected problems. And you wonder, how can this all go so wrong? Well, here though, in Jerusalem, the sad thing is, is that the reconstruction is more than just bricks and mortar. It's tied to those types and those shadows of the Old Testament. It's tied very much at that time to God's favor. They're pictures and they're signs that things are not well. That there is a sense of God's judgment on His people. What's going wrong? Here it's been a whole long lifetime. And still, the walls are broken down. Things are not well. And here's Nehemiah. As a cupbearer, He was a servant. But we have to understand that a cupbearer, and that might not sound very special to some of the children here to bring somebody their coffee or their drink. But in ancient times, to rise up to the position of cupbearer was significant. That meant that Nehemiah, was the most trusted servant in the palace. He brought the king his food and his drink. He took care of the king, and he had ended up at the right hand of the emperor, undoubtedly for a reason. You see this, actually, in the Old Testament again and again, that God has his chosen people, men like Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah, who, if you read through the events of their lives, are some of the most righteous men of the Old Testament by God's grace. And they often ended up rising up because of the wisdom that God had given them and the blessings God had poured out upon them to be in places of influence. And so you can actually think of Nehemiah's position here actually of being something like a prime minister. We have prime ministers in nations that have kings or queens, and even if it's symbolic in these days, prime minister actually means first servant, chief servant. Somebody like Nehemiah or Daniel early would have ended up to a monarch being something like a prime minister, a chief servant. Yes, they brought the food and the drink, but they had the king's ear. He trusted his life to them because of the danger, by the way, of poisoning or of bad food being passed off to him. And so here's Nehemiah. He has this important place and there's hope in that. There's still hope in that, by the way. Politics may be difficult may seem like a corrupt arena to many on many levels. But God still has, and he has in many, many ages, even his children at the right hand of kings in evil empires. And there's a great hope in that when you think of Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah and Obadiah and when you read of some of the godly leaders of times past. And despite the challenges, we should know that the Lord actually often works in this way. That He plants His people in obscure places, and maybe you would have never otherwise heard about them. They're more like a chief servant, and yet, by God's grace, placed where they are in their workplaces, placed where they are, perhaps in the halls of power, but as servants. Still being used by God's grace for the upbuilding of his kingdom. Let us pray for them and be thankful for them when we know them. But Nehemiah's position, it meant knowledge. He would have, being in the palace, heard different emissaries and, and different leaders of different nations coming in, and governors and ambassadors coming and going. And here he hears some news from his homeland. And he hears. Probably hope to hear of some rebuilding, some progress. He hears of a little remnant, a few leftovers, a small group in great distress, reproach, and shame. Great distress and reproach. The walls are broken down. By the way, if your capital city in ancient times, if its walls were broken down, that's a really bad scene. That's a bad picture. Because capital city actually we don't think of things being done this way but a walled city even the farmers often lived in the walled cities in those times because at night you would go back into the city they would shut the gates and and that would be a secure place to live and it would be a place you could run to for refuge and if you didn't have a walled city and a home or a storage place in that walled city to keep your grain and your food and your money or at least to be able to run to you could be in a lot of trouble Enemy tribes or other armies or robbers could come. And so to have the walls broken down, that's a really big flaw in your your whole economic system. It's a flaw in your sense of security. There's nowhere to run to. There's no strong tower, those pictures that are used in the Psalms. There's nowhere to go. It's a bad scene to an ancient person. Other passages help us to fill in the reasons for some of this bad scene. What was happening? Why wasn't the wall built up? Well, the prophet Haggai in 1 verse 4 says, Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So some of God's people were busy when they resettled the land, building up their houses, building up their homes, building up their thriving businesses to the point that they had paneled walls in their homes, that they could invest money into their home and have a beautiful home, and they still let the temple in the capital city lie in ruins. And that may be about the temple, but it gives us some insight. People had other priorities. There was also a web, as you read further through Nehemiah, a web of alliances with other local peoples who would have later been the Samaritans in the New Testament, but who are Amorites and others and those who had intermixed with those living in those areas. And what you find as you read through Nehemiah, where there were people who, who didn't really want the walls build up because it seemed easier to sort of give up and make an alliance with the neighbors and try not to poke them too much or to rile them up and to just leave things the way they are. But then there were deeper heart problems as well. Zechariah, the prophet. He writes after the 70 year exile. During those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And what Zechariah is highlighting there, is that some of God's people, though they had 70 years of exile, though they were, so to speak, kicked out of the house for their sin, it never really hit home. They never really came to the place of repentance. They acted like they're fasting, and they acted like they were sad about it, but really in their hearts, it was not true repentance. And God has to ask them through the prophet, did you really fast for me or just for outward appearances? Did it really prick your heart that the problem with your nation and the problem with your situation was that you have sinned against God? And so the real problem of this situation, the real issue at the root is a divide with the Lord God. A brokenness and a broken downness that came from their sin against him and they were not truly seeking him with all their heart soul and mind and many were just fine with the situation it the way it was and it shows that even after an exile even after the chastening hand of the Lord there was still carelessness among many of God's children. And the state of those walls was a a visual picture of what Nehemiah faced and the great problem that was ahead of him. He now is is planning, at the end of the prayer, to go ask the emperor, can I go help rebuild those walls? But he's going to face all kinds of problems, and one of those problems will be that like a child who's sometimes punished. Maybe some of you have had a child like this. He tried to punish them their sin they just folded their arms and they said even maybe literally some I don't care go ahead spank me again they were hard-hearted they never truly repented and so that's what these walls symbolize much more than just a broken down construction site a lack of broken hearts but Nehemiah's reaction is not this way Here the Lord has, by His grace, raised up a leader. He sits down and He weeps and He mourns and He fasts. The many days, if you put it together from 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 1, the months, it's about four months. Four months of praying and fasting and deep spiritual concern for the state of His people. Nehemiah will be a man of action later. He will actually rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in less time. But first, he prays and he fasts. Don't we sometimes turn to prayer after action fails? Or we try to do this and that first, and when we finally hit enough dead ends, or, or things get hard enough, then we turn to prayer? Or we make all kinds of plans and we start a project and then, so to speak, Baptize it with a little bit of prayer, but not Nehemiah. No, the hidden foundation to the rebuilding project that you can read of later, the hidden foundation, the foundation beneath the foundation, is actually the prayers of Nehemiah for months and months and months, and it's true care and concern. It's weeping over the state of his homeland and to react in mourning. Think of also, we looked at the Apostle Paul this morning when he saw the state of God's people and the danger of enemies around. What did he do? He wept. Wept in a time when few seemed to care. True deep care. The most loving care of all will lead to prayer. There are some in our culture, those who are not believers, it seems, who have made, I will pray for you, almost an insult. Especially when something tragic happens. You'll see it sometimes in the news. There's a horrific event. Some Christians say, we will pray for you. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. And some make that into a trite and a light thing. It doesn't mean much to them. They want to see action no no it's actually true evidence of prayer when you say you will pray for a friend and you better follow through on that because it shows true care it is at actually the the foundation it's underneath restoration whether it's of an an individual life gone astray or of a nation gone astray it's at the foundation of wise action And it's not just prayer. The watchword or one of the watchwords of the Reformation was actually pray and work. Pray and work. We don't just stop at prayer. And Nehemiah certainly would not. No, they both came together. True prayer was at the foundation of wise, thoughtful, careful action. But then deeper still, Nehemiah's care and his prayer shows that he is a realist. He's a realist. He cares deeply about the state of the Christian church, but even more than that, he's something in a sense of an optimist, of an optimist. We could say, and our attitude could become, well, our churches are a faithful remnant, and things are okay with us. And let's be thankful for what we have. And indeed, this is true. But it's when we have a deep concern and a deep care that we learn to pray and we cry out for help. And one of the signs of that, by the way, is when we as churches begin to pray, not just for ourselves and our own denomination, but for our neighbors and our friends and those lost and those broken down, perhaps churches where liberalism has taken over, that we would pray also for What sometimes we find is a faithful remnant in some of those churches still, perhaps not knowing where to turn or where to go. But wouldn't it be good if we had a broad and a big vision in our prayer that the Lord would revive many of His churches, that those broken down and those empty church buildings, some places that have been turned to dance halls and everything else, that once again there would be faithful Mainline churches even. Restored by God's grace. The preaching of the gospel going out again. It's when we have a deep care and a concern for those that are remnants also. That we learn to pray and we cry out for help. And the good news is again and again God answers those prayers. He gives strength and courage and wisdom. The church has been. The church more broadly. By the way, I speak as a Canadian where It's said in studies that in the 1960s, the early 1960s in Ontario, where I'm from, 86% of people went to church regularly. And now we're below 5%. And I don't know how much different it is in the broader United States. But in church history, what has happened again and again is when the church seems to be buried... And when it seems to have been broken down and it seems that the walls and the gates are broken down and and all kinds of terrible things come and go, that God's true children, His remnant, are finally taken to their knees. That they learn to pray again, to weep and to mourn over the state of the church and to confess we and our fathers have sinned and it is just then. That the Lord takes His weak and His wounded and His ashamed disciples like He took the eleven who had abandoned Him and who had turned their backs and who had betrayed their Lord. He takes them so that they learn to pray again and to be on their knees before the Lord and to care and have concern for His church. And it is then that the Lord again and again has revived, we don't know when, we don't know if it may be many years or if the Lord will return before then. But again and again, he has strengthened and he's revived when prayer is at the foundation. Well, now we come to Nehemiah's prayer itself. It begins with what we could call a proper address. O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, Nehemiah knows his God. He's not just praying to a a vague idea of God. No, he's using the name Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God who truly exists, the God of Israel who has all power, who made all things and guides all things. What's interesting is he also uses, though, first, Lord, which in capital letters in the Old Testament, that's Jehovah behind that, the covenant name of the God of Israel. But then he uses, I pray, Lord, God of heaven. Now the Persians, the empire he was in, they had some idea of a God of heaven. They had different twisted and broken ideas. But they would read this as a claim that Jehovah is the true God over all. And undoubtedly some Persians and others, they would read manuscripts write this. And it's, it would become a testimony, the rebuilding Jerusalem after this. That the Lord God, Jehovah, the true God, Who gave the rebuilding of Jerusalem and who restored that temple is the great and the awesome God. The older word used there is terrible, but it means the the awesome God, the almighty, the all-powerful God. And to address the Lord God in our prayers as He is and to speak of His attributes... His awesome and almighty power and His holiness and His grace and His mercy and His kindness. You who keep your covenant and mercy. Nehemiah here is speaking of of some of what we call the attributes, the characteristics of God. It's good to begin our prayers in this way. It's an act of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11. And so the people of God, you see, they come to points where they feel tiny and lost and scattered and broken down. But our God is higher than the heavens. He is the great I am. The true existing one. The one who is and was and is to come. The one who is sovereign over all things. And we must come in prayer to the one true God. And He is more than capable of answering, of giving strength and wisdom. He hears the cries of His children. Well, the next main part of the prayer then is confession of sin. So He starts with His address. Addressing God as he truly is. But then he moves next to confession of sin. And by the way, when you look at the prayer of Nehemiah in the first chapter, and then as you continue through the book, there's something of that acts pattern. I think some of you have probably been trained how to pray. One way of praying is to pray adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, to work through the main parts of prayer that you find in many psalms, and some of it also in this prayer. He started with adoration, addressing God as He truly is, true reverence for God. But then now, confession of sin. Children of Israel have sinned against you. Verse 6. It's very common in our world and especially in the culture around us, to see a nation or a community in trouble and to look for all kinds of systemic problems, to point fingers at corruption or at politicians or at racism or at violence or at lust or at materialism. And many of those things do affect us, and they are real. And they can be recognized in the world around us. And at times we have to teach the next generation and our children that these things are real and we do not do this or we do not do that. But notice Nehemiah's mature approach to the problem and his godly approaches. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Daniel, by the way, who also prays a prayer which is at the foundation of restoration, prays the same thing. Here you have two men of the Old Testament who though they must have stumbled in many ways and had the imperfections that we looked at this morning also, that a little bit in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he's not yet apprehended and he's, he's not yet perfected. Certainly they would have had their flaws. And if you read the last chapter of Nehemiah, you might think, well, this man had some flaws as well. He seems at least impatient at times. But Nehemiah and Daniel, you don't read of some of those great falls like others had in the Old Testament. Some of those horrible besetting sins of men like Abraham or David or Noah. These were godly men in their daily walks, it seems. Righteous men. And yet... He confesses, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah's diagnosis of the problem is, we've all sinned. It's a corporate confession of sin, we call it. A confession of sin for the whole body, as part of the body. When I was a young man, thinking about going into the ministry... I had an older minister. I think some of you may have known something of him. It was Pastor Theocorus Joannides. He actually taught me Greek every Thursday evening for a couple years on his own time. He taught me many things. And one of the things he said is, one of the biggest problems that's missing in the church as it declines is, is the kind of prayers that Daniel and Nehemiah prayed. Which was a corporate confession of sin and also a confession that we are part of the sins of our own nations. That we are tied up in that. That we are involved in that. That we have no right just to look down our nose at everyone else and point the finger at all the corruption that is out there. But if we are truly self-aware and if we truly understand the corporate nature with which God judges nations and churches, that we would acknowledge our part in that. And he used to say to me, and I think he was right, until God's people learn to confess, we and our fathers have sinned. We, free reform churches, have sinned. We've acted corruptly before you. Until we learn to confess this truly before the Lord. That it seems there would be less and less hope of true self-awareness. And so Nehemiah, he is a mature example. He's an honest example. He knows he's not good enough to deserve to be in God's presence. He knows He's not righteous enough that he would deserve to rebuild the walls of the city of that time or to build up the church in our time. No, he came before the Lord as a poor and needy sinner, as one who needed help, much help. What a good place to be in. Nehemiah is realistic. He's self aware. He knew he was part of the problem. Are you willing to confess your participation and your part in the sins of your own nation, in the sins of your own church, in the sins of your own family? Are you willing to confess with God's word, as James does? We all stumble in many ways, or just finger point. It's all their fault. It's not fair. See, some, in the time of the exile, they were complaining. They were saying, our fathers ate sour grapes, and our teeth are turned on edge. It's an illustration. It was a picture that. Our fathers did these sins, and now we reap the results of this. But that's not Nehemiah's prayer. It is, we and our fathers have sinned. Well, now Nehemiah pleads on the Lord's mercy and grace. He's confessed the sin of himself and of his nation. He admits they do not deserve to be restored. Only a few had gone back, and he's hoping for more. Nehemiah lived before the Lord Jesus had come. But he knew something of the gospel message. If you return to me, he was able to appeal to the words of Moses And the promises of the Lord there. That after the people were scattered, scattered, if they returned to Him, that if God's people were humbled and they sought Him and they sought His law, God would redeem them. Like He once delivered from Egypt. The expression, by your great power and by your strong hand. That's an expression used in the Psalms and in other places of the picture of how God pulled His people out of Egypt and He used the ten plagues and He defeated Pharaoh. He used a strong arm tactic as it were to to pull the children of Israel from that satanic and that evil ruler Pharaoh and Nehemiah reminds the Lord these are your people these are your covenant people these are your children and he pleads on the covenant mercies of the Lord that as the Lord had delivered before so he would do again and Nehemiah you see here is praying praying in an earthly sense as a mediator. The Lord God set him up as a type and as a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ in some senses. Pleading on the promises of God coming in between for these broken down and these sinful and these fallen people. And later in the next chapter he'll mediate before the emperor. He'll be a go-between for Israel and he'll take up their case. And Nehemiah's love is shown in his intercession for them. But you see, Nehemiah has a great problem. The problem is the condition of the covenant. God's condition of his covenant was, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, then you will be restored. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. But what did Nehemiah just confess? We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. You see the problem? That God's Old Testament people, Nehemiah has to confess, they haven't met the condition. When you have a condition on a sale of a home or something like that, you have a condition that a new roof has to be put on before we take possession of the home. It needs to be cleaned up. The garage needs to be cleaned up before we'll pay the money for the house and take possessions of it. And if the conditions are not met, there's consequences. And you see, God's covenant, roughly speaking in the Old Testament, was ultimately His covenant of grace. But He was using Sinai and the Ten Commandments to teach His people again and again, you cannot meet the conditions no one has done it and nehemiah's in the same predicament here he pleads with the lord and he prays to the lord please lord have mercy upon us but he cannot say he's met the conditions no he's actually confessed he has not and so what do we need because we're really in our own righteousness in the same predicament we cannot meet the conditions of living near to the Lord, of being in His presence, of being close to Him. We cannot meet the conditions of His church being restored. The only hope is, is that we pray in the name, based on the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who met all of the conditions. He is the only one who was qualified to build up, and even to be the new Jerusalem, to be the new temple of God. See, Nehemiah's calling was to rebuild a mere shadow. He was to rebuild actually what is the shadow of the true reality, the the walls that he built. Those were actually, in God's word, just shadows, pictures. Just things that were illustrations of what is more real. And what is more real is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, Nehemiah, he does a heroic rebuilding. But he does a heroic rebuilding. He leads it by God's grace of a city that would not last. Its inhabitants would miss the point again. Zion and the temple, they were a picture of communion with the Lord. They were a picture of coming to meet with the Lord and being welcomed in His house. And being welcomed in His presence. But you see the only way in that we now know, is by way of the Lord Jesus Christ. The real thing, the true hope of rebuilding is that in Hebrews 11 verse 10, there is a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That the Lord Jesus, as He taught, that that temple and that city were actually about Him. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, humanly speaking. Nehemiah was a faithful mediator, a man of God, but he was also a sinner like you and I. Humanly speaking, he was able, by God's grace, to rebuild a nation. But that nation and that place was just a container, as it were. Pictures of grace and mercy and of God's kindness, but ultimately pointing to the good news, the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, that mediator between God and man who laid down his life for sinners. That one who kept every condition of God's covenant perfectly. He lived and walked on this earth. Grace and mercy and truth and a person keeping every commandment, being a true worshiper, bringing a perfect sacrifice, even himself becoming sin for us. And so here is the good news. When we pray that God would restore, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come into His presence by that new and living way. We are to come in boldness and assurance that we are welcome even in the holy of holies of heaven. That's where we even enter each Lord's Day. We come into the presence of the Lord and we come welcome Because the Lord Jesus Christ has built a new temple without hands. A new way. A new hope. If you struggle with the need of restoration, the first place you need to look is to the Lord Jesus Christ. To His resurrection. His death and His resurrection. He not only died on the cross. He rose again. He's had the victory over sin and death. And he now lives forever at the right hand of God the Father to make intercession for us. And here is the good news. The good news is, yes, all of the cities of men, and even the churches, they go up and down. They wax and they wane. The walls get broken down in time. But we have our rock in heaven our redeemer eternal and when our hope and our help is in his name there's nothing to fear do you trust in him today do you look to him and to his finished work what a hope there is in that And the good news of the gospel goes out again today to yes be concerned about the state of the world be concerned about the state of the church yes I hope from time to time you weep even literally over the state of things and your nation. But then, to turn and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust that in Him there is an eternal hope, a new and a heavenly city, a place where we will dwell in communion with Him forever. So the call is, repent of your sin, confess we and our fathers have sinned, But trust in hope that He will gather His church in. The gates of hell will not prevail. And He will build His church.